Let's start with a quote from Spurgeon today. I'm a little tired, a little sleepy, rainy outside, but, but Spurgeon will get anyone going. So uh, let's, let's start there. I was going to save it for later, but we'll, we'll, we'll just begin with Spurgeon. This is what he says. I believe that every particle of dust that dances in the sunbeam does not move an atom more or less than God wishes. That every particle of spray that dashes against the steamboat has its orbit as well as the sun in the heavens. That the chaff from the hand of the winnower is steered just as the stars in their courses above. The creeping of an aphid over the rosebud is as much fixed as the march of the devastating pestilence. The fall of leaves from a poplar is as fully ordained as the tumbling of an avalanche. Indeed, every gentle breeze is just as animated by the finger of God as is the raging of a hurricane. This is our Father's world. He orders and animates everything that exists. He is the conductor of this great orchestra, and all of the instruments play in rhythm and in tune together. And yet, if you check the news stories, most of them are not sort of detailing uh, things that happen by saying, God did X this week, right? And then there's good reason for that. Uh, providence is best read backwards, and oftentimes even the most holy among us are baffled at what God may or may not be doing in a particular situation. I think so often in life people uh, have that question, why God? What are you doing? And one of the really wonderful things about the Bible is that oftentimes, throughout, it transports us into the throne room of the king. It introduces us to his plans and his purposes, and then allows us to watch those plans and purposes unfold before our eyes. To the end of increasing our adoration and praise and worship of him, and to the end of showing us that nothing, as chaotic as the world may seem, nothing is outside of the control of his mighty hand. We come to such a place in Scripture this morning in 1 Kings chapter 11, when we are taught the lesson that Solomon, though he sits on his throne in glory, is not God. Indeed, we learn that God is king. And he will suffer no rivals. Not even if those rivals are erected by the one who sits on the throne of David. The main idea this morning is this, is simply God rules the world. If you want just a word to take and put in your pocket and carry around with you this week, the word is providence. Uh, providence is just a way of saying that God sees to it that things get done. It's his carrying out of his will in the world. Outline is there before you. Let's pray, and we'll work through the text today. 
Father, we thank you for your kindness to us. We thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you for uh, calling us together to worship you this morning. We come together uh, not as those who are connected by any particular background or any particular aptitude or uh, by any uh, particular thing we have in common, save for this, our common faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, who has purchased each believer here for himself by his blood through his propitious death on the cross. We thank you that we are united together in him. And so we come to give you praises through him by your Holy Spirit. And so we pray uh, that we would sense your presence among us right now, that, that we would recognize that you still speak today through your word, that you are still about not only calling a people to yourself and saving them, but making them holy. We pray that the result of our submitting ourselves to your word would be an increase in our joy, a deeper delight in you, and that we would be more and more shaped into the image of Christ. Father, cause our love to abound more and more in all knowledge and in all understanding. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Kings chapter 11, and starting with verse 9. And the Lord was angry with Solomon, because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice, and had commanded him concerning this thing, that he should not go after other gods. But he did not keep what the Lord commanded. Therefore, the Lord said to Solomon, since this has been your practice and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. Yet for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of David, my servant. And for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen. What makes God angry with Solomon? Well, Solomon's rejection of his word. His outright disobedience. The, the stamping of his foot at the Lord and saying, no. Remember, we have been reading all of 1 Kings against the backdrop of Deuteronomy chapter 17, which tells the king of Israel he's to write down God's words and God's commands in a little scroll approved by the scribes, uh, carry it around with him, and read from it daily. He says to submit himself to the word of the Lord. And there are some things he's told not to do. He is not to gather to himself excessive wealth. And what have we read over and over again as we've also looked at Solomon's glory. You look back there in, in chapter 10. I'll let you do that on your own. You see verses 14 through the end of the chapter. You'll see the word gold a whole lot, 10 plus times. It's not to gather to himself excessive gold, and yet we've seen Solomon do just this. He's not to get for himself weapons, horses from Egypt. And yet uh, we see over and over again, you can see back in verse 28 of chapter 10, Solomon's import of horses was from Egypt. 
we learn he has a whole lot of them. So he's gathered to himself weapons, guns, if you will. And we're also told, as the kings of Israel, uh, are not to gather to themselves uh, many wives. Now, I don't know how many wives is many wives. Uh, I assume it's, it's more than one. Uh, but even this morning in Sunday school, you know, it's got 700 wives and 300 concubines. And we're talking about how uh, the anniversaries would overlap, you know. Like, you think you have trouble remembering your anniversary. Imagine with Solomon. Like, oh, all right, I think there's three today, flowers. He has disobeyed the command of God and gathered to himself, as we've said, gold, guns, and girls. Or you can, if you want to do it a different way, uh, wealth, weapons, and women. And it's the women who turn his heart from the Lord. You see that in verse 4. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart. Where? After other gods. Remember, he'd married Pharaoh's daughter to begin this whole thing all the way back in chapter 3 to try and forge a political alliance in part and also to satisfy his lust. But he'd done that in disobedience to God's word. The problem wasn't that uh, Pharaoh's daughter was, well, Egyptian. The problem was Pharaoh's daughter worshipped false gods. And the Lord had warned him over and over again that he shouldn't marry foreign women because they will turn his heart after other gods. Indeed, the Lord appeared to Solomon twice and commanded him concerning this thing, that he should not go after other gods. Twice he appeared to Solomon. Now, before you go, <laughs> if the Lord showed up to me personally, even once, and told me not to do something, hell, I wouldn't do it. Solomon, what an idiot, right? Before we start shaking our heads at Solomon, we ought to bow our heads in humility and pray. You see, Solomon was as the best of us. Verse 3, chapter 3, Solomon loved the Lord. The only person that's said of in the Old Testament. Solomon loved the Lord. And yet, the loves in his heart became disordered. His heart was double. He turned away from God. We should hear the warning and heed those words of Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 12. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. God is angry with Solomon because Solomon is worshiping other gods and God alone is worthy of worship. This is first commandment stuff. Have no other gods before me. And yet it bears repeating to Solomon and to you and to me, which is why uh, John writes it in first John, he closes his epistle this way, little children, keep yourselves from idols human heart is an idol factory, and we are, as we sang earlier, prone to wander away from the Lord. This is what Solomon has done, and the result of his sin is God's keeping his word. See, Solomon doesn't keep his promise to walk faithfully with God as David did. 
but God will keep his promise, both to be faithful to give David a throne forever before him and to bring all the curses of the covenant upon those who disobey. And so God begins that work in verse 14. He's going to raise up two adversaries. Uh, Literally, that word is Satan. If you want to just have a a glimpse into the Hebrew, it's kind of interesting, right? There's a couple Satans he's going to raise up against Solomon and a David that he's going to raise up against Solomon. Two adversaries and a David. Uh, We'll start with the first adversary in verse 14. And the Lord raised up an adversary against Solomon, Hadad the Edomite. He was of the royal house of Edom. For when David was in Edom and Joab, the commander of the army, went up to bury the slain, he struck down every male in Edom. For Joab and all Israel remained there six months until he had cut off every male in Edom. But Hadad fled to Egypt, together with certain Edomites of his father's servants, Hadad still being a little child. They set out from Midian and came to Paran, and took men with them from Paran and came to Egypt, to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who gave him a house and assigned him an allowance of food and gave him land. And Hadad found great favor in the sight of Pharaoh, so that Pharaoh gave him in marriage the sister of his own wife, the sister of Tophanes, the queen. And the sister of Tophanes bore him Jenubath, his son, whom Tophanes weaned in Pharaoh's house. And Jenubath was in Pharaoh's house among the sons of Pharaoh. But when Hadad heard in Egypt that David slept with his fathers and that Joab, the commander of the army, was dead, Hadad said to Pharaoh, let me depart that I may go to my own country. Doesn't sound a little bit like Moses in the Exodus. You're supposed to hear it. But Pharaoh said to him, what have you lacked with me that you are now seeking to go to your own country? And he said to him, only let me depart. Hadad's story, it's a little bit like a revenge movie in a lot of ways. I mean, you've got all the plot points. There are foreign invaders that come into his land. His homeland is stolen. All of his loved ones are killed. He, he, among very few, is able to survive. And so he flees and finds safe haven in Egypt as a child. And there in Egypt, he also finds the favor of Pharaoh. And Pharaoh gives to him house, food, land, and even a wife. And amidst all the blessing he enjoys in Egypt, Hadad does not forget David the giant slayer or Joab his commander. He nurses his hatred for Israel and for the sons of David. He even names his son Jenubath, which means stolen Land has been stolen from him. His family stolen from him. And he waits in Egypt to avenge. Until he hears that David and Joab are dead. And then he goes, and you see later in verse 25, that he is always doing during the days of Solomon harm 
this harm to the people of Israel. Here's what we, we need to recognize. God raised up this adversary, and it was no accident. It was no coincidence. God had a plan and a purpose to use Hadad as an instrument of his judgment against Solomon's sin. And he did. Indeed, God is, is ending the prosperity that he brought to Solomon. Back, back in verse 4 of chapter 5, we, we had read Solomon saying these words, Now the Lord my God has given me rest on every side. There is neither adversary nor misfortune. God is bringing that peace to an end. Hadad is causing trouble from the south. It's interesting. You would think that Solomon's sort of political maneuvering in marrying Pharaoh's daughter as a wife would protect his southern border or at least prevent any threat from rising out of Egypt. And yet, despite his best political calculations, indeed, he has trouble from the south. See, the ends don't always justify the means. The ends often don't work out in the end. What we ought to learn is that our most clever machinations and maneuvers are poor substitutes for simple obedience to God's word. Brothers and sisters, it is far better to simply obey God's word than to trust in your too clever wisdom. So often we justify disobedience to God's word in order to achieve some other end. One of the things we can observe here from Solomon's life is that sin will find us out. That ignoring God's word in order to act according to our wisdom is truly folly. Friend, where do you put your trust? In your own ability to assess and address a situation? Or in God's word? Solomon rejected God's word in favor of his own wisdom. He took to himself many wives. And even as a political calculation, it didn't pay off. Because his peace came not from his political alliances, but from God. And when he acted in rebellion against God, God raised up adversaries against him. The first is Hadad, and the second is Rezin. Look with me at verse 23. Hadad comes from the south, and Rezin comes from the north. God also raised up as an adversary to him Rezin, the son of Eliada, who had fled from his master Hadadezer, king of Zuba. And he gathered men about him and became leader of a marauding band after the killing by David. And they went to Damascus and lived there and made him king in Damascus. He was an adversary of Israel all the days of Solomon, doing harm as Hadad did. And he loathed Israel and reigned in Syria. Rezin flees, his master leads a group of marauding raiders, and eventually 
is made king in Syria, which is a little ironic because in Solomon's pursuit of gathering excess gold to himself and weapons to himself in the forms of chariots and horses, he actually sends some of those chariots and horses to Syria in exchange for gold. See it back in verse uh, 37 of, oh, that chapter 10 doesn't have 37 verses. Back in verse 29 of chapter 10. So here's the irony. Solomon, according to his own political calculations, is arming his enemy. And so he faces a second adversary. Again, it's no accident. From the south, God is conducting history according to his purposes. He's raising up adversaries against Solomon, bringing enemies from the north and the south. And he also brings an enemy of Solomon from within. He raises up a new sort of David. Look with me at verse 26. Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, an Aphromite of Zerda, a servant of Solomon, whose mother's name was Zorah, a widow, also lifted up his hand against the king. And this was the reason why he lifted up his hand against the king. Solomon built the millow and closed up the breach of the city of David, his father. The men, I'm sorry, the man Jeroboam was very able. And when Solomon saw that the young man was industrious, he gave him charge over all the forced labor of the house of Joseph. Which is an interesting note because uh, if you remember our sermon a few weeks back, we pointed out how Solomon had become very Pharaoh-like. He'd gathered gold to himself. He had slave labor going on. Uh, he had a bunch of other things that we talked about. I'm not going to rehearse all those here. But we, it seems that his forced labor now includes Israelites, includes those in the house of Joseph. He's become very Pharaoh-like. And at that time, when Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem, the prophet Ahijah, the Shilonite, found him on the road. Now Ahijah had dressed himself in a new garment, and the two of them were alone in the open country. Then Ahijah laid hold of the new garment that was on him and tore it into 12 pieces. And he said to Jeroboam, Take for yourself 10 pieces, for thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I am about to tear the kingdom from the hand of Solomon and will give you 10 tribes. But he shall have one tribe for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, the city that I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel. Because they have forsaken me and worshipped Ashtaroth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Chemosh, the god of Moab, and Milcom, the god of the Ammonites, and they have not walked in my ways, doing what is right in my sight and keeping my statutes and my rules as David his father did. Nevertheless, I will not take the whole kingdom out of his hand, but I will make him a ruler all the days of his life for the sake of David, my servant, whom I chose, who kept my commandments and my statutes. But I will take the kingdom out of his son's hand, and will give it to you, ten tribes. Yet to his son I will give one tribe, that David my servant may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city where I have chosen to put my name. And I will take you, and you shall reign over all that your soul desires, and you shall be king over Israel. And if you will listen to all that I command you, and will walk in my ways, and do what is right in my eyes by keeping my statutes and my commandments as David my servant did, I will be with you, 
and will build you a sure house as I built for David. And I will give Israel to you. Jeroboam is described to us as a very able man, an industrious man. <clears throat> the word in Hebrew carries with it the idea of a valiant man, one full of valor and fit to lead. And immediately, it's intentional, it's to draw our minds back to David, who is described in the same terms. See, Jeroboam is a rising star in the Solomon administration. And Solomon, in his sin and his rejection of the word of the Lord, has become a lot like King Saul. And so in this chapter, you have Jeroboam cast in this role as a new David, receiving Davidic-type promises. And you have Solomon, the son of David, who is supposed to be the one who is delivering his people and bringing blessing to the nations, and yet has turned his heart away from God. He's cast in the role of Saul really is interesting. In the same way that David rises through Saul's administration, so too Jeroboam. David has a man from Shiloh come and anoint him as king. And Jeroboam, likewise, has a prophet from Shiloh come and declare to him that he will be king. It is Really, really interesting. And, and listen, do you guys remember Samuel from Shiloh? Let me, let's rehearse that story. It's back in, you find it in 1 Samuel chapter 15. Uh, Samuel is the last judge of Israel. He's also a prophet. And so he's a big time leader, right? And he is the last one that we have before we enter into the age of kings. And Samuel is told to anoint Saul as king. And so he anoints Saul as king. And then he tells Saul, listen, this is what God wants you to do. You are to go to the Amalekites, and for their sins, you are to destroy all of them and all of their stuff. This is God's justice to them. So uh, Solomon says, all right, cool, cool, cool. Uh, and he goes up to the Amalekites, and he tells the Kenites, hey, you guys are good. You, you can get out of here. I'm gonna, we're going to lay waste to this land. Uh, and so he does that with the exception of he saves all the cattle, all the livestock, the text says everything that is good, and he saves King Agag, who Samuel eventually hacks to pieces. That's just a, a fun note that I'll let you read about later. Uh, but but he, he doesn't fulfill all the word of the Lord. But Saul is very, very satisfied with himself, and so he's like, this was awesome. Uh, I'm the king. We've kept the Lord's word. What do you guys want to do? Solomon was a, uh, I'm sorry, Saul was a people pleaser, and so he acts according to the word of the people. And they're like, let's go build monuments on Mount Carmel, and we'll We'll just do our thing there. It'll be great. And so Saul goes and builds a monument to himself at Carmel, and Samuel then uh, is headed towards him. And the Lord tells Samuel, Saul has not kept my word. And as Samuel approaches Saul, Saul turns to him. He thinks everything is great. And he says, behold, I've carried out the command of the Lord. And Samuel says, this is one of my favorite lines in Scripture. He says, what then is this bleeding I hear? Like, I hear a bunch of sheep, and you were supposed to kill all the sheep. You haven't kept the word of the Lord. I think I always think of that when I think of my own Christian life. There are times where I think I've really obeyed God in a particular direction. And then all of a sudden I think, actually, was that obedience half-hearted or incomplete? 
much as if the Lord says to me, have you obeyed me, Justin? What then is this bleeding I hear? That bleeding is from my child next door. Loving. Saul has no idea what's going on. Like, what do you mean? I've kept the word. I I didn't kill all these sheep because, really spiritual reason, we were going to sacrifice them to God, right? Samuel's like, look, well-intended as that may be, God doesn't want your sacrifices. He wants your heart. He wants your devotion. It was the same thing with Solomon. He wants Solomon's wholehearted devotion. And yet Solomon, like Saul, rejects the word of the Lord and will not submit himself to the rule of God. And we know how the Saul story sort of comes to an end, this part of it anyhow, that chapter. Samuel tells him, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, the Lord has rejected you. He's rejected you from being king. And then verse 27, 1 Samuel 15. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. Now listen again to verse 11 when the Lord's speaking to Solomon. I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. Same words that were spoken to Saul. And then we come and we hear the introduction of Jeroboam, who is a servant of Solomon. And then we encounter Ahijah, the prophet from Shiloh. And what does he do? He has a new garment, and he tears it into 12 pieces. You see see the connections here between the garments. Because there's a new Saul around, there's a new tearing of the kingdom that's going on. This time, the kingdom isn't going to just be torn away from Solomon because God has resolved to be faithful to David. But it is going to be torn in two. Ten tribes and one. We'll get to the math in a second. He says, pick up ten for yourself because you are going to rule over Israel. You're the new leader. Yet because of the mercy I have for David, because of my promises, one tribe will remain with the descendants of Solomon. I will keep a lamp burning for myself. Now you're going 10 plus 1 is not 12. How, how does this work? Some of you or others of you are like, I don't see a problem. The, the math here is interesting and would have made complete sense to the original readers. However, it's lost on us. And so there are all sorts of suggestions about how the math makes sense. The idea is that, well, the Levites don't have land inheritance, and so uh, we recognize that it's the tribe of Judah together with the Levites, and that makes one. There, there are a bunch of such suggestions. Let me read to you a few from one commentator. Is Judah, he does it in the form of question. So how are we to understand this? Is Judah Solomon's own tribe assumed to remain loyal? Has Benjamin already been subsumed into Judah? Or has Simeon been swallowed up by Judah, which surrounds him? Is this a reference to the neutrality of Levi? Is it impossible to be, it's impossible to be certain, but the fate of the nation is clear. 
nation will be torn in two. A northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. Because Solomon has gone the way of Saul. New David is being raised up. New David is needed to be the king who represents God's rule, walks in God's ways, just as David did. These are really big promises that are made to Jeroboam, are they not? And yet Jeroboam proves to be no more messianic than Solomon. He's he's the new David in, in this chapter, but in coming chapters, he turns out to be a new sort of Moses slash Aaron who leads the people out of Solomon's oppression, but then do you know what he does? He sets up two golden calves for the people to worship. He's no less idolatrous than Solomon. And so uh, we, we read this, uh, you know, in one sense, that the post-exilic readers read this and they know how Kings ends. The book of Kings is about the fading glory of the kingdom. It ends in exile. And they're going, it's right. The author's right. We need a king. We need a new king. We need hope. And there are little flickers of hope in this chapter. And you've probably heard them already. And there's that question, is, is God abandoned his people? Has he abandoned his plan to redeem the world? And the answer is, is no. Verse 13, chapter 11 I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen. Verse 36, yet to his son, I will give one tribe that David, my servant, may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city where I have chosen to put my name. Verse 39, and I will afflict the offspring of David because of this, but not forever. There is hope. As Saul-like as Solomon seems, even in verse 40, Solomon sought therefore to kill Jeroboam. Remember Saul tries to kill David a bunch of times? As Saul-like as Solomon is, as ineffective as Jeroboam will be, as sinful as all of these kings are, God's promise does not fail. God's discipline of his people is not a cancellation of his covenant. He will afflict them, but he will not abandon them. There is hope. Just a flicker. There is a king who will come. I love how Matthew describes it. He comes to a land of the shadow of death. where Jesus shows up in the land of Galilee and Nephtali and begins preaching, what? The gospel of the kingdom. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In the gospels, we are introduced to that forever son of David, great David's great son, the king who will sit the throne into the ages forevermore. And he is suited to be king because he keeps God's word perfectly. 
He will not reject it as Saul and as Solomon. Indeed, he is the word made flesh. He always acts according to his father's will. Indeed, the father's judgment is given to him at his baptism. Behold, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Indeed, Solomon's double heart led to the tearing of the kingdom into two, and Jesus's wholehearted devotion led him to the cross where he would be torn apart so that all of his people might be joined together into one new man, so that those who are dead in sins might be called out of the grave and into life, might be raised together with Christ and seated at the right hand of God, given every spiritual blessing, being adopted into God's family so that that all who trust in Christ can hear that same word of God. Behold, this is my beloved son. Son with whom I am well pleased. Friends, Jesus, the good and mighty King, came and earned God's blessing for all of his people because we, his people, had earned nothing more for ourselves than death and curse and judgment. We deserve to have Satan after Satan raised up against us, and yet what God has done in Christ is raised up, raised up his Son in our place. He raised him up to die on the cross for our sins, and he raised him up out of the grave, victorious over death. This is the gospel. The good king is credited with our sins and is punished for our sins on the cross. He is crushed beneath the wrath of God. And we are credited with his righteousness, with his goodness. So that we can say, Jesus died So that his people, that's everybody who turns from sin and trusts in him, he died so his people can have their sins forgiven, and he rose from the dead so that his people can be free from death, can know that we will share in a resurrection like his. Jesus has ascended into heaven. He sits on the throne of David right now, and he is ruling and reigning right now. He is orchestrating everything in the universe right now according to his will for his glory and for the good of his people. And he has promised to bring to us a new heavens and a new earth. He's going to bring us back to Eden. This is the good news of the gospel. There is a king who saves the people and brings blessing to the nations. His name is Jesus. Non-Christian, I want you to know anyone can have relationship with Jesus. You were made to know God, and right now, if you are apart from Christ, you do not. But you can. You must turn your heart away from false gods away from sin and self and towards God, trusting in Christ alone. He's your only hope. He is the king who has slayed that great dragon of sin and death. Without him, you will be consumed by God's wrath. Turn from your sins and trust Christ. Interesting, God, in in weaving together history, and in this chapter is showing us that he keeps his word, 
and that he is in complete control of everything. All of this happens right on schedule. God is not an ambulance driver. He doesn't see things happen in the world and go, oh no! He's an orchestra conductor. He created and he sustains the universe. And so when you consider the cross, when you consider God's work in the world, you need to recognize not just that it's there that your salvation, Christian, is purchased for you, but it's there you see the goodness and providence of God on display. The cross was not an accident. It happened right on schedule. Let it be a reminder of God's love for you, but also let it be a reminder to you of God's power and providence. Why, why, do, why am I trying to press this? So I think very clearly we see in this chapter that God is sovereign over history. And that should come to you if you are a Christian as the feel of a warm fire on your face or a cozy blanket on your skin. It should be as, as a mug full of hot cocoa or coffee in your hands. God's providence should be the pillow upon which you lay down your head in rest because it means nothing comes to you apart from the sovereign will and plan of God. We need to stamp the truth of Ephesians 1 on our hearts that God works all things. Notice that's not some things or many things. It's all things according to the counsel of his will. We need to carve the truth of Romans 8 on our bones. God works all things together for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. Indeed, if God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You see, when you look at the cross and you see Jesus Christ suffering for you, you can know that the God who would do that for you is after your good in any and every circumstance. Friends, God is big enough to sustain and animate everything that exists. Like we live, I like this phrase, it's, it's Piper's, we live in a God-enchanted world. He paints new sunrises every morning. In fact, the sun's always rising somewhere, and so he's always painting a new sunrise. He's always clothing lilies, feeding birds, splashing leaves with colors, spinning planets, hanging stars, and watering the earth with rain. He does it all. He gives us life and breath and everything. He is big enough to exercise his mastery over those dust motes that hang in the light of the sun and to care about you. That's good news. He's good and he cares about you. 
that should give you so much confidence. You can pay attention to planets and grass and mosquitoes and monuments and everything all at once. Now, I can't do that. I have five kids. They all want my attention. I have to say one at a time. God can pay attention to all of us all at once with his full attention. And he does. He cares about you. He'll fulfill his purpose for you. He has you right where he wants you right now in his providence. That means when hurricanes come, you can say, like Job, the Lord has done this. And I trust him. You can trust what God has said in the light while you are in the dark because he's good and he cares for you and he's in control. When things around you seem to be chaos, you can trust that God has ordered all of it for your good and for his glory. God is not out of control. That should give you peace. God rules the world and is worthy of your exclusive worship. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that by it, you make us alive together in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Thank you for the opportunity to give you praise and thanks. Everything we have has come from your wonderful hand. Every good and perfect gift has come to us from you. And we pray that you would help us to trust your heart even when we can't seem to understand what you're up to in life. Help us to draw near to you. To trust your fatherly affection more than we trust our own feelings. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.